well. But this morning, we are, of course, continuing in our study through First and Second Samuel, lessons from the kingdom for today. We are at the next to last chapter, penultimate. That's a 10th grade uh, English word there, in case you're wondering. But uh, next to last chapter of uh, this study and Second Samuel 2. And here we find what are, in fact, David's final words. Really what they are are his last written words in psalm form. And we should note that this psalm, it's only found here. It isn't, it's not among the others that are recorded and found in the book of Psalms. It's the last song that David would compose as king of Israel. Uh, though it's not our final record of what he did. In fact, chapter 24 reveals one more lesson um, that we can learn from this man. And beyond that, 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles also give some additional insight into these final days of Israel's king. And though David is not done making mistakes, the final verdict is and will be that he pleased God, and we'll consider that when we get to our last message in this series. But through today's verses, one of the central themes that I think we can glean are those qualities, choices, character traits, at least some of them, that make for greatness. That is in God's eyes. We could have titled this... Uh, keys to leadership or something like that. But I feel like that title, it, it alienates some of us who think, well, I'm not a leader. And even though I believe we all are, what we're going to find is chapter 23 contains keys to greatness. And in the biblical sense, we are all of us called to that. And if that is to rise above the, the average, in a sense, spiritually speaking to rise above the bare minimum, to enter into God's best. That's what we mean, and that's what we're talking about. And sometimes that, that greatness, it's, it's recognized and acknowledged by people, and other times it's not. But God always sees, and what he sees and values is most important. So in looking at 2 Samuel chapter 23, the, our message, again, is titled Keys to Greatness, and you can follow along if you've got the outline, if you grab that on your way in. James Burns, in his, his book Revivals, he writes, once St. Francis of Assisi, a 13th century Catholic and founder of the Franciscan order, he was known for his passion to follow Jesus and to lead others in that same way. Well, he was confronted by a brother who asked him repeatedly, why you? Why you. Francis responded in today's terms, why me what? Well, why does everyone want to see you, hear you, obey you? You are not at all so handsome, nor learned, nor from a noble family. He's really complimenting him here. Yet the world seems to want to follow you. Then Francis raised his eyes to heaven, knelt in praise to God, and turned to this brother. And he said to him, you want to know? It is because the eyes of the Most High have willed it so. He continually watches the good and the wicked, and his most holy eyes have not found among sinners any smaller 
nor any more insufficient and sinful. Therefore, he has chosen me to accomplish the marvelous work which God has undertaken. He chose me because he could find none more worthless. And he wished to confound the nobility and grandeur, the strength, the beauty, and the learning of this world. There's something of that in David's life. And in all those, those men and women greatly used by God. Humility, an awareness of their desperate need for him. A profound love for God and a deep understanding of his grace and goodness over their lives. His undeserved choosing. Israel's king understood this. And it was part of what made him truly great. So this morning, we're going to begin in looking at the first seven verses, but let's stop here a moment and pray before we do that. Father, we ask that, Lord, you would open our eyes that we might behold and understand wonderful things out of your law. Lord, I pray, God, that you would move and shake us a little bit, Lord. I know even the idea of, <laughs> of greatness, it's, it's is lost on some of us because we're so convinced that we're anything but that. And, and in a sense, we're right. And yet you call us to more. You've redeemed us. You've set us apart. You've made us your ambassadors. God, it's your desire that we wouldn't simply settle, that we wouldn't be comfortable with that status quo. God, but that out of a passion and a fire to serve and please you, we would be driven to be nearer to your heart. And there's not a man or woman drawing breath for whom that experience doesn't change them radically and make them great in your kingdom. And so I pray that this morning, as we move through these verses, that we would each of us glean Lord, what you would say to us, where you would press and push us to go deeper, farther, to trust you more intimately. Lord, to walk maybe in greater humility, to depend on you more fully that, God, we might find ourselves walking more faithfully. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we, we have two points this morning. We're, we're looking to separate our, our message into two parts. And, and the first is David's final psalm. It's not particularly clever. It just is stating what it is, this last psalm. Verse 1. Now, these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the, of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel. So David, as he introduces himself, he sort of does so in four parts. The first is he says he's, he's David, the son of Jesse. And it would have been easy for David to introduce himself differently. High king over the nation of Israel. Great ruler of the 12 tribes, he could have said. Yet he remembers his humble beginnings. David, he's the son of a farmer. And he, he remembers that, and he calls himself by his father's name. He didn't forget who he was. It's wise for you and I to do the same. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul, he, in that chapter, lists all manners of, 
uh, of reprobates and notorious sinners and sin and that they won't enter the kingdom of heaven. He makes that very clear. But then he reminds his audience, the Corinthians, he says in chapter 6, verse 11, and such were some of you. Gives this horrible list that, that you know, would make a Bible-believing Christian blush. And he, th- he says to them, and by the way, you used to be on that list. It's healthy for you and I, like the prophet Isaiah exhorts Israel as a people, in chapter 51, verse 1, to look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the hole of the pit from which you were dug, to remember the miry pit that Jesus lifted us out of. That humility, it's one of the healthiest and best qualities in God's people. And although David uh, faltered and, and failed at various times in his leadership as king, And in his walk as a child of God, this was something, a lesson that God drove deep in his heart. And he he carried it to the end. Secondly, he writes that, that he's a man raised up on high. David knew that his life's path was God's idea, not his. Another psalmist wrote in chapter 75, verse 6, For exaltation, it comes neither from the east nor the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. David understood this. And we've seen and studied in his life that he wouldn't manipulate or connive to take the throne. He entrusted God's timing and plan It's tempting to assert ourselves, isn't it? To to promote our agenda. Believing it to somehow be for the kingdom. Yet God is pleased with men and women who wait on and trust in him. Maybe one of the most difficult things for you and I to do. Nothing apart from prayer. Apart from waiting and trusting God. Thirdly, he writes the anointed of the God of Jacob. David was literally anointed, but also spiritually. We read that back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 12. The prophet had been sent to the house of Jesse to find and anoint. That is, pour oil over the head of the next king of Israel who would replace Saul. We read, now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good-looking, David. And the Lord said, anoint, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. This young man would be the next king of Israel. He'd replace the rebellious Saul. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So David, Samuel, excuse me, arose and went to Ramah. No one can do the work of God let alone walk in the way of God apart from the Spirit of God. I'm reminded of Zachariah's word to Zerubbabel when he was facing the seemingly insurmountable task of rebuilding the temple. And what did Zachariah say to him in chapter 4, verse 6? Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Lastly, David identifies himself as the sweet psalmist, of Israel, and I imagine that the people that his citizens had given him this name. David was a worshiper, 
yes, a king and a warrior, but as a, a man after God's own heart. First and foremost, he, he simply wanted to offer his life, his service, and his voice in service and glory to God. And a question to ask ourselves is, do you and I? There's a lot to be learned from David and his leadership just in the way he opens up this psalm. How he chooses to do so with humility and deference to God, recognizing God's calling and hand on his life and that he's been empowered by the spirit of God as a man who primarily was one who worshipped God. Is that how we think of ourselves? David was a man with both feet planted firmly on the ground, but with his heart established in the heavens. He was a man after God's own heart. He goes on in verse 2. The spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and his word was on my tongue. David understood that his psalms, they weren't merely his own musings. He wasn't the only one to write scripture and know and understand that in doing so, he was actually writing the heart and mind of God, that he was doing it by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 30, the apostle Peter, in quoting David, refers to him as a prophet, having foretold many things surrounding, actually, the life death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he continues in verse 3, actually doing that very thing in this psalm. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be like the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. First of all, David writes and he says, he who rules over men must be just ruling in the fear of God. David knew that as king, it was his responsibility before God to execute and rule from a position of justice, to walk in the light of the law of God, in the fear of God doing those things that were pleasing to him. This is the responsibility and calling of every ruler. Imagine if those who ruled over us today did so according to this instruction. You must be just ruling in the fear of God. That would change a lot of things in our world, wouldn't it? <laughs> but many believe David in being spoken uh, through by the Holy Spirit as we read a moment ago, he projects and is projecting further beyond his own rule as king to the Messiah of Israel, as David did many times in his Psalms. We're led to think of Jesus in these passages simply because they couldn't find their fulfillment in David or any earthly king. David knew and understood this. Remember, after the Lord, through the prophet Nathan, had rejected David's plan to build a temple or, or a house of worship, God told him that he would instead bless he and his house. We read about that in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 7, verse 11. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you. You will come, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chastise him with, his, with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. Verse 15. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that word found partial and near fulfillment in David's son, Solomon. But his rule came to an end. That greater son of David would come later and do exactly as scripture foretold. This was what the angel Gabriel told Mary when he visited her. You might remember this, Luke 1 verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus he will be great and will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. So here in this last psalm, David speaks prophetically. Verse 4. And he shall be the light of the morning when the sun rises. A morning without clouds like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. That ruler who must be just, ruling in the fear of God, David now speaks of as the, the light of the morning when the sun rises, as well as being like the tender grass on a beautiful day after the rain. It's the idea of a new beginning and the clarity that that brings. Interestingly, we find language elsewhere that's similar, but speaks clearly of Jesus. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, we read, And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That, that is that the gospel message, what Peter is saying, brings illumination in anticipation of that yet future day in which Christ returns like a day dawning, like the light of the morning when the sun rises. Recall Zacharias' prophecy regarding his own son, John the Baptist, as well as his cousin, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. In Luke 1, verse 76, and you child will be called the prophet of the highest for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace so what we see is the language that David is using in 2nd Samuel chapter 23 Speaking of the light of the morning, this, this imagery is something that comes up again and again in specific reference to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. In Revelation 22, verse 16, John records Jesus' own words. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify of to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. It would seem that the Holy Spirit inspired David to prophetically use this same imagery here to look beyond his own rule as king to that greater kingdom that was coming, that would be birthed through his own kingly line. 
David here, he even recognizes the limitations of his own family, and he's going to write about that in a moment. Acknowledging that, that though God has promised to build him an everlasting house, he knows that that's going to be fulfilled in some way beyond his, his literal and, and limited earthly descendants. In verse 5, he says, although my house is not so with God. He knows he doesn't match up to all that we've just spoken to. Yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? David, he knew and he understood that though he desired to please God, he and his house fell short. God, of course, he was merciful in choosing and using David anyway. But he understood that there would be a, a fulfillment of these promises that were made to him back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that would come through the Messiah. And that was David's desire to see God's greater plan fulfilled. That house that God would build for him that would be manifest in the coming of Jesus himself. Verse 6, but the sons of rebellion shall be as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron and the shaft of a spear and they shall be utterly burned with fire in their place. This seems to be an acknowledgement that those who would rebel against God's kingdom with his king would be judged and dealt with by God himself. In the context of David's rule as king, he knew this experientially to be the truth that God had fought for him, fought his enemies. And again and again, God had delivered him and defeated those enemies. David trusted in God. And that was, of course, another aspect of his greatness. Now we begin a new segment in this chapter in which we consider David's mighty men who we've referred to before. Those warriors and soldiers who were so great that they, they earned a place of special remembrance. And you might recall how many of these came to be in David's service where they came from the very beginning. It was after David had been forced to flee the palace trying to escape Saul's murderous plots against him. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, we read, David, therefore, departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. So when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to him. The, the author of Samuel is like they set up a, a sermon there with the three Ds. But the picture there of those men who came after David, it's so vivid, distressed and in debt and discontented. That's not who you would want to recruit to be on your team. It's not who you want in your inner circle. These are those who became David's mighty men. So he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Think about how we began in David's fourfold introduction of himself and how he began essentially with humility and an identification with his, his roots and his beginning that many would have been content to forget or leave off of their resume. It's the same place where these men start. <laughs> Debt, discontent, As we begin to look at this select listing of men, what we find 
First are three in particular that the author identifies for us. These alone made Israel's warrior hall of fame, you might say. And our second point is titled Sacrifice and Service, beginning with verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josheb, Bashabeth, the Tachmonite, chief among the captains. He was called Adino the Esnite because he had killed 800 men at one time. Now, 1 Chronicles chapter 11, verse 11, offers a parallel list and actually tells us that the number of those killed by this man um, in that record was 300. And we believe that it was likely due to a transcribing error many centuries ago that there was a mix-up along the way. So we're not sure if it was 800 or 300, but he was noted for that. He was a tenacious and a brave warrior, chief among captains. Verse 9, we come to the next one. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. Sorry, just (laughs) Old Testament names. The Ahohite, one of the three mighty men with David, when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel had retreated. He arose and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to plunder. We've got, uh, if Mark is in the sanctuary, we could use some help with Easy Ups outside. Maybe if uh, John, you could help find him, that would be great. Thank you. The problem with standing up here, see, you all don't get the benefit, and neither do you at home, of seeing what's happening out here, whether it's water building up on an Easy Up and dumping on someone. Remember when that happened? It was second service. You missed it. It's been a long time since a bee or a beetle. It's, it's not a security issue. We don't need five people. It's okay, really. Um, guys are going out there like they're going to arrest somebody. We've talked about trying to solve the problem of not being able to connect indoor and outdoor. It's really bad second service because we got 30 people out there and less in, not less than 30, but a smaller group here. But on days like this, you really don't want to be connected outside. You're thinking, why are you talking about this? Because I'm watching a scene from, you know, The Wizard of Oz where it looks like it's going to take things away and I'm trying to stay focused and it's really hard to... So if you're thinking, Pastor Aaron, why are you having a hard time? I'm going to blame it on that, even though really it's trying to deal with Dodo and uh, 300 people killed. But anyway, I digress, don't I? Yes. See, why are you staying at home? People on, no, I know you have good reason to be at home. We're glad you're there and we're glad you're with us this morning. Whoo. <laughs> He arose, verse 10, and attacked the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand stuck to the sword. The Lord brought about a great victory that day and the people returned after him only to plunder. I love the picture that's given here. And we actually have about three um, stories surrounding some of these great men. And they're vivid for us. They actually help us understand why they in particular were considered great warriors apart from just killing a lot of people and and, uh, carrying out acts of bravery on the battlefield. This man in particular, he he fought with such uh, valor that after after the slaughter, his, his 
muscles were cramped. His, his hand was, was fixed to the hilt of the sword such that they had to almost pry it loose because he wouldn't stop fighting until the battle was done. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. How easy it is to give up, to get discouraged, to lay the sword down, to walk away from the battle. We want to be those men and women who, whose hands are, are fixed to the sword. And I'm sure many have elaborated and used comparisons to the word of God, but we could simply look at it and speak to the importance of tenacity, commitment, steadfastness in our service to the Lord, faithfulness. Eleazar stayed when it was hard. Do you and I, do we stay when it's hard? I'll be frank with you. I, I think uh, you all deserve credit for staying in, in a church body that meets half in a warehouse and half through a garage door under easy ups that probably should be replaced with something else. You know I'm longing for a new building. The Lord has something to do through the weakness of our experience, but there's truth to that. A lot of people, be it in the context of a church or a relationship or some other experience, they move on when it gets hard, don't they? 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man, and we could easily write here that a woman, be found faithful. Faithful. The author, he also records of this, that the Lord brought about a great victory that day. What was great about these men, and, and this one in particular, was not solely his own tenacity or skill. It was... The presence of the Lord in the battle. I pray for that. I, I pray for the Lord to be in this battle with us. Corporately as, as a church body, but also as individuals. Because when God is present, there's a whole lot that can be overcome. Despite and in spite of us. And when that's happening, God receives the glory. God receives the glory Verse 11, and after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The, Philistine, the Philistines, uh, what, what was notable about Shammah, it was a battle in which the Philistines had gathered into a troop where there was a piece of ground full of lentils. So the people fled from the Philistines, but he stationed himself in the middle of the field, defended it, and killed the Philistines. So the Lord brought about a great victory. So the first guy had his hand to the sword and wouldn't let go to the extent that it was cramped around it and they had to pry it loose. This guy took his stand in the middle of a field. Everybody else left him. He was there by himself and he wouldn't budge. He refused to give ground that had been given to Israel by God. Have you surrendered ground that the Lord has taken in your life? In your ministry, have you given up? This was a man who said, no, I will not give up to the enemy. Even though everybody else is running, I'm going to stay right here. All it was was a field of beans, a field of lentils we just read there. It'd be so easy to just say, what does it matter? Who cares? Just move on. It's just one. No, it was God's 
territory. It mattered. Paul exhorted the Ephesians in chapter 6 verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore. Some of us just need that simple, we're talking about keys to greatness. And, and again, God's interpretation and understanding of that is far different than, than ours. Simply being faithful, simply being committed as he is to you and I, not giving up, not yielding. And here again, we read what we saw previously. So the Lord brought about a great victory. There's something in that where these two men in particular, they chose commitment, they chose faithfulness, steadfastness, and God met them there in it. I think there's a truth to that. When we choose to believe God for a battle for victory, God honors that faith. And sometimes we invite more trouble than is necessary through a lack of faith, through abandoning the battle. Sometimes we wonder, well, why didn't that work out? Well, why did that fall apart? Well, you walked away. You wouldn't stand there and fight anymore. God wants to meet us there. He wants to bring about a victory, but we've got to show up at the battlefield. Can I get an amen? You can't walk away and, and expect and claim and pray, oh, God, give us the victory uh, while you're, you know, uh, sitting on the couch. We've got to get in the game, be in the fight. Now we look at another three who stood out among a separate group of 30, especially great soldiers and leaders. And if you read this chapter previously, or if you're going to later, you're going to find there's several references to uh, three and, and 30, and then we even have a list of 30 at the end that actually has 37. And there's all kind of speculation about which group it's referring to, and we're not going to take a lot of time trying to figure that out. We're just going to focus on the names and what God did through them. Verse 13, then three of the 30 men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. I love this story. And the troop of Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. Verse 14, David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out before the Lord. And he said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy for their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. So in this case, these three guys, they're not even named. They're anonymous, and yet... Their act of service was honored. And that's how it is sometimes you're not remembered. People don't see of you or say that you're great, but the work that God used you to do was great. And I think sometimes th those are especially exciting circumstances. Can you think of a time in your life when it's been that way? I think of some people that the Lord brought through my life that, that went on to do amazing things. And, and they're not wearing some badge with my name on it or something, but I'm looking at that going, how exciting that I got to have a little exchange 
with them. Sometimes it's something like that. It might be there might be something where you've contributed to something in some way. A few weeks back, well, I spoke to this briefly on a Sunday a few weeks back. But those of you who uh, worship through giving, I always write a letter and send it with the tax letter that goes out in January. And um, I think of how all of us, when we give either to this ministry or to another work, that. We're a part of that. Now, we're not the kind of church where you get your name on a pew or anything like that. But, but know that your name is on this work, though there be a degree of anonymity to it. And that's good. There's some safety in that, isn't there? When God uses us to do something and our name really isn't part of it. Because then it's just his name. And he gets the glory. Well... It's a beautiful account here of the loyalty and love that David's men held for their king, their willingness to sacrifice their safety, to risk personal harm, simply to express to him their love and loyalty in the middle of a battle. Sacrificial, extravagant love. That's what these men had. This was David's hometown, Bethlehem, that had been overrun by the Philistines. The city had to be reclaimed. And while he and his men were holed up in their stronghold, David, in grief over the predicament, I imagine maybe he just sort of said it to himself. But these three were near enough to hear. Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. Think of some place you grew up. Some, some, something from a, a place, a fond time in your life. Maybe it was a sandwich at a place you went to college. Okay, I, I'm actually thinking of this place called Pepe's Grinders in Fontana, all right? It was on Foothill Boulevard, and as a kid, we would go there and get grinders, and you get a pastrami, and every once in a while, still, I think about, like, taking a Monday on my day off and driving out to Pepe's and getting a grinder, because they're still open, and I don't want anybody to go get me a grinder today, okay? Because I'm having a replacement shake for lunch. But anyway, don't, don't go be one of the three and bring me a soggy sandwich, but anyway... That's what it was. David was like, I'm, I'm longing for not just something from his hometown, but his hometown that had been taken over by the enemy. A, a place where anybody used to be able to just freely go and get a drink of water. And, and David's not asking anyone to get it for him, but because of their love and respect for the king, these men, they took their lives into their own hands. Not unlike these who went, took into their own hands and fixed the easy up. Thank you guys for rescuing us and our little building that was blowing away in the wind. They wanted to show their devotion, their commitment. No doubt they were thinking, not only, David, will we gather a drink for you from that very well, but all of Israel is going to be able to drink there again soon. Under your leadership, we're going to retake this city. And going and getting the drink of water, it spoke to that. So the three mighty men, they broke through the camp of the Philistines. They drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but he poured it out before the Lord. So it'd be like today if you did decide to drive to Fontana. And me knowing that you actually took your life into your own hands by going to that part of Fontana to Foothill Boulevard to get me a sandwich, 
you would come and bring it to me, and I would say, oh my gosh, and your catalytic converter didn't get stolen, and your car didn't get shot up, and you, I did, and I just go and put the sandwich before the Lord, you know? Like, I can't eat this. I feel too bad, and that's what David did. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of men who went in jeopardy of their lives, and he poured it out like you would a drink offering in worship? The children of Israel at the tabernacle of worship, they would bring uh, animal sacrifice, but they would also bring oil and wine. And it was offered by being poured out right in front of the altar. That's what's happening here. Paul writes about this. He says, yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and services of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Those who are great in the kingdom of God, they serve without being seen. They worship, but there's a quality to their sacrifice by which they choose anonymity. They don't allow their, their right hand to know what their left is doing. Are you and I able to sacrifice, to serve, worship, and minister, even if we're not seen or acknowledged? Now, in verses 18 and 19, we're introduced to a familiar name who stood out in another group of three unnamed leading men in David's armies. Verse 18, now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of another three. He lifted his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. Was he not the most honored of three? Therefore, he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. Abishai was a loyalist to David, having never gone over to Absalom when the kingdom was split. He also was the one to save David on the battlefield. Remember back in chapter 21, talked about how David was getting a little too old to fight, and one of the Philistines almost killed David. Abishai was the one who rescued him. His brother Joab was marked by self-will and greater allegiance to himself than to the king. Abishai was a man who sacrificed to serve. He's here noted as a chief among this group of three, their captain having slain 300 on the battlefield. Now we have one final account of yet another especially significant soldier. Verse 20, Benaiah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. And the king, excuse me, and he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah the son of Jehoiada did, and won a name among three mighty men. He was more honored than the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his guard." Now, 1 Chronicles 7.25 also references Benaiah uh, and points out that he was born a priest but became a soldier. Just a little thing to note there. 1 Kings 2.35, we find that Solomon will appoint this same Benaiah as chief of his armies as Joab is going to become party to a rebellion against Solomon trying to raise up a guy named Adonijah as king and Abishai actually has to put him to death. 
Benea not only killed a, a lion in a pit on a snowy day, uh, but also these lion-like Moabites. And then this Egyptian, he came at him just with a staff, managed to get the guy's spear away from him and kill him. So um, he was just a cunning warrior. Now, as we close out this morning's chapter, we find a list of 37 names. We're not going to read all of them this morning, all right? I'm going to spare you that, but it is your homework, and we're going to have a test next week. This was a diverse group, all right, representing different tribes and even Gentile nations. It speaks, that speaks, to the greatness of David's leadership in inspiring followers from a variety of backgrounds. But if you read these verses, there's an interesting name that you find at the very end, and that's Uriah. How that sin of, of murdering this innocent man must have grieved David throughout his life. Uriah, of course, the, the, fought, the husband, excuse me, of Bathsheba. And while David was forgiven, he and his family uh, and the people of Israel, they had to pay deeply for that sin. But despite David's wrongdoing, Uriah's greatness would still be honored, a man noted for his loyalty and bravery, his valor, his, his valor, excuse me, Valerie, his valor would not be taken away from the memories of God's people. We remember from 2 Samuel 11 that this man, he was exceptionally faithful, uh, faithful to the nation and his king, and as such, he was remembered as one of David's mighty men. Now, as we close this morning's study, what are some of the things that all of these men who were remembered for being mighty and great warriors, what did they have in common? David's mighty men were valiant in battle. They were brave. They were committed. They were willing to do hard things, things that needed to be done, sacrificing and serving their king whom they knew to be a humble man, a man who valued the kingdom over himself. He was a man after God's own heart. David had opportunity again and again to defend himself, to act selfishly, to fight, to preserve his, his position, yet he trusted God and God fought for him. This simple man, the Lord had called from the sheepfold to lead other men, to lead a nation. I appreciate this quote from A.W. Tozer. He writes, a true and safe leader is likely to be one who has no desire to lead, but is forced into a position by the inward pressure of the Holy Spirit and the press of circumstances. See, what's interesting about the list we read of all these mighty men, Joab didn't make it, except to be mentioned as Abishai's brother. Saul was not on that list, and so many others, no doubt, who were wrestling and fighting to be recognized, to be seen, to be noted, to be recognized. Those weren't the ones that, that were remembered in, in the word of God as great. <laughs> it was the, one who, the ones who were distressed and discontented and in debt. It was the one, the king, who remembered that he was, he was just a simple guy that grew up on a farm that needed God's anointing on his life who was marked as a, a man who worshipped. Tozer goes on, he says, there was hardly a great leader from Paul to the present day, but was drafted by the Holy Spirit for the task and 
commissioned by the Lord to fill the position he had little heart for. The one who is ambitious to lead is disqualified as a leader. The true leader will have no desire to lord it over God's heritage, but will be humble, gentle, self-sacrificing, and altogether ready to follow when the Spirit chooses another to lead. There's a blessed irony in and about those men and women who are truly great in the kingdom of God. They trust him with promotion. And they don't seek it for themselves. I, I want to close with a page from Mark's gospel. Maybe Pastor Frankie and the guys can come up to lead us in a final song. Mark 9, verse 33. Then he came to Capernaum, Jesus. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, the disciples did. For on the road they had disputed, argued among themselves, who would be the greatest. It's got to be embarrassing to be called out by Jesus for that one. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Therein we find the true key to greatness in the kingdom of God. Others, placing the Lord, his priority, his agenda before our own. That takes faith sometimes more than we have. We have to depend on the Lord. We have to cry out to him to equip us to be those kinds of men and women that we might serve him and be used by him in all of the ways far more radical than we can imagine or understand. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, for your word this morning, we are thankful for the truth, God, that's contained in it. And I pray that wherever in our lives there's to be application, that, Father, we would allow it and that we would welcome it. God, if there's a greater walk of humility that you're calling us to, Lord, if it's a surrendering of our agenda... Maybe, maybe it's a, a broadening of worship in our lives. God, a, a greater awareness of our need for your anointing, for the filling of your Holy Spirit. A steadfastness, a commitment, God, to where you've called us in life that we would stop giving up. That we would repent of that spirit and attitude. Lord, that our hand would cling to the sword, that our feet would stay planted, God, to, to that place, that field where you've called us to do your work. Lord, that we wouldn't be swayed by others. We wouldn't give up. But that our eyes would be fixed on you, Jesus, the author and, and finisher of our faith. That we would be strengthened by that vision of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.